Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. These words, enshrined in the First Amendment to the United States Constitution, have a deep and storied history. Although the U.S. Constitution prohibits the formal endorsement of religion by the government, faith and politics are inescapably interwoven into American past, present, and future. Today's episode reflects on this interconnectedness between faith and politics, taking us on a spiritual journey as we hear from Gabriella de Golia, a pastor in training at Union Theological Seminary in the city of New York. Growing up in a politically active neighborhood in San Francisco, Gabriella takes us from her time as a resident in this progressive community to her early teenage years in France and her political and spiritual activism during and beyond her college years. For Gabriella, political participation has always been a part of the fabric of her life, raised to be engaged in politics from a young age by her parents. But as she grew older and broadened her horizons, she realized that, while she deeply values the act of voting, not everyone has been afforded the same kind of access and sense of efficacy from this act that she has. Ultimately, for Gabriella, the vote ties back to her relationship with her communities and her belief that she exists in systems where there are larger forces at work than herself alone. She reflects on how the inescapable connections between communities and individuals has become painfully apparent in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Offering ministerial comfort and guidance, Gabriella gently challenges listeners to recognize the ways in which this crisis is revealing how deeply interconnected we are, and how we might support that interconnectedness through our political efforts, voting, and otherwise. She offers hope for the possibility of rebirth and connection politically, economically, and spiritually as we emerge from this pandemic. Welcome to another episode of What Voting Means to Me. for being here. It's good to see, quote, see your face. Uh, we are, we are broadcasting, not broadcasting. We're recording in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're doing things remotely. But yeah, I would love to um, just know a little bit more about yourself and what motivates you and anything you feel called to share. Yeah. Um, so my name is Gabriella and currently I am a grad student. I am in seminary and I am uh, pursuing a path towards uh, becoming a pastor in the United Church of Christ, which is a Protestant denomination. So I'm someone who is very steeped in spiritual matters as a professional career. Um, but before really digging into this path, uh, I actually used to work as a voter engagement organizer, especially mm. for young adults, and um, was a social justice educator and activist based in uh, mostly in Washington, D.C., um, and 
after that I, I, I moved and I've, I've leaned more towards um, the blending of spiritual practice and social justice activism. Uh, but my, my very first job right out of college was being a, a voter engagement organizer with young adults. Oh, that's a great segue to like one of my favorite questions um, to ask folks, which is this, this like question about your first like memory of engaging with democracy. Like, did you go to the polls with your parents? Did you, you know, protest in high school? Like sort of what sort of comes to mind when you think about like, oh man, like when was my first sort of like tangible experience with a democratic system? Um, I, it's hard for me to pinpoint the first memory because I, because my parents steeped me in like avid democratic like system, like they were avid supporters of democracy ever since I was really young. And so I just remember as a young kid going with my dad to the local Safeway, which is like a grocery store, um, at least that we have in California. And uh, I, I was help, just standing next to him as he helped register people to vote, like outside of a grocery store. Um, so that that's definitely one of my earliest memories. And a a sort of <laughs> famous family story about me was um, I was with my mom as she was engaging in supporting a political candidate who was running for local office, and I, I was with her. And someone someone basically critiqued her and tried to accuse her of, of child labor um, as she was engaging in, you know, oh like just bringing her kid, her kid along with her because um, the ba- I, like we didn't have a babysitter at the yeah. time. And, um, and I looked at the person and I said, I'm a volunteer. <sighs> so I just like from a really young age, just kind of had this excitement surrounding um, being engaged in, in systems greater than myself, um, which, you know, now kind of mirrors my desire to be a pastor and to be engaged in um, relationship and in, in community with, uh, with people and, and entities that are far greater than me. Um, but that definitely applied to me also when I was a kid and this excitement that I felt surrounding being engaged in, in government and in democracy, even though I understood it in a very limited manner. And um, just uh, generally people are, are politically aware and somewhat active yeah. there. I would say maybe more than the average place in the United States. Um, and, and yeah, I, you know, I, I grew up in a household, I, I mean, I, I'm white. No one in my family is uh, ha- has been convicted of a felony. Uh, we were relatively well off, and uh, we're, we're citizens of the United States. So there were all these factors about my just my social location and my family, and uh, a whole bunch of things that just made it so that um, voting we were catered to, you know, as voters. Yeah, um, yeah. An approach, which I don't think is. That's not the case for everyone. Um, no, it's definitely but. not. It's definitely not. Yeah. So, so, um, like, would you say that like candidates and party organizations and interest groups were like active in your neighborhood and in like campaigning and sort of like reaching out to residents? Is that something that you experienced? There were. I remember, you know, like seeing going to like candidate forums as a kid, even though I didn't really understand what it was. I mean, I remember being in proximity to people who clearly had a good amount of political power. And um, my, you know, my my mother worked on a number of political campaigns, including a campaign for the presidency. And um, when I was young, I I went on trips to like Nevada and all wow. sorts of places to be 
involved in in presidential like primary campaigning and and um uh so so yeah i i definitely grew up surrounded and surrounded by and engaging with candidates for political office yeah and, um and even you know like uh, i mean in california we have this whole book books worth of you know ballot initiatives oh my and, god that's right yeah and, um so there's there's a lot there, there was always a lot of also issues like it wasn't just about um political candidates it was also about like voting on such and such reform and um reforms that really affected us like you know taking care of the trees on our sidewalks like who, who's responsible for that yeah. is it the city is it each is it each resident is responsible for the pot of concrete in front of their house like um San, uh, San Francisco and California in general, um, for better or for worse, has a lot of <laughs> a lot of avenues for people to really get um, engaged in in the political system, um, just with the propositions and, and the ballot initiatives alone. So yeah, definitely engage with that a lot, even from a from a young age. Yeah, yeah. So um, if I'm remembering correctly. You also spent some time in France in your formative years. Um, anything about that experience that sort of stands out as being, I'm assuming there's some differences between the United States and France in terms of civic engagement. But yeah, is there anything about that experience that um, you'd like to share? Yeah, yeah. So I lived in France um, basically for my middle school years. Um, so obviously that's a formative time uh, for anyone. And it was also when George W. Bush was president. Mm. And so um, m- my family didn't support him as a candidate. Um, but being an American in another country, a lot of people just assumed like, oh, if he's your president, then you support him. And people, it, at least in, in the circles that I ran in, um, in the southwest of France, um, but I think across France and, and Europe more broadly, we're very, very anti uh, George W. Bush, um, mm-hmm. it just in, in large part because of the international policies that he was supporting. And so um, being in a different political context in a different country, yet seeing the importance of the United States, uh, of United States politics for people you know, across the, across an ocean was very, very, um, enlightening to me and, mm-hmm. and further helped confirm the belief that I already had, which was that, Oh, American politics matter. Mm-hmm. Um, not just, not just for the United States, but for the entire world. Um, and it was also really interesting to be in a country that, you know, I mean, many, many in the United States would critique <laughs> France as being socialist. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, it, we've had a socialist president in, uh, in France and um, there are um, basically socialized medicine. And I, I was someone who actually benefited from socialized medicine, even though for a time I was technically undocumented in France. Yeah, mm. I was going to I was going to the public schools there. I, I was able to receive medical care. Um, you know, my parents like. I, I remember learning about it later that I was technically undocumented for a time, um, but that politically or, you know, civically, I, I didn't notice anything. I didn't notice anything. Um, mm-hmm. And so that I think was also very formative for my own development as someone who is now very progressive and who I, I support, you know, I, I support universal health care and mm-hmm. I, I support um, public education initiatives that go beyond what is usually offered in most parts of the United States, because I lived in a country that provided that kind of care to mm. its people, not in, not in a perfect way, obviously, but, 
um, yeah, being in France definitely confirmed my sense that American politics matter and also mm-hmm. um, helped me become a sort of left, left-leaning uh, progressive individual. Yeah, so. yeah, absolutely. I'm curious, um, I kind of have a, a, a two-part question, but I think I'm just going to take it like one part at a time. Thinking about American politics today from your perspective as someone who is um, in training to become a minister, as someone who has um, the background that you do in experiencing a more progressive and, and socialist-oriented um, you know, program in a place like France versus the United States, um, I'm wondering... From your perspective, like what are what is like the singular challenge you see facing American democracy today? I know it's a big question, but I I would love to know from like a maybe both a spiritual and like a, a practical perspective as someone who has a background as an activist uh, in politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think my answer to that is a bit is itself like too layered in the sense like there, there's a practical, there's like a practical issue to, to me, one of the biggest issues in American politics is the fact that there is so much, such big money in politics mm-hmm. and just how that is completely disintegrating the fabric of our democracy. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, and, and my first job out of college was in part running, running a campaign to educate young folks on the influence of big money in politics and, and finding ways to, um, uh, to support uh, to, to support initiatives to to do away with that. So from a practical level, my that that's the biggest issue I think for me when it comes to, to democracy mm-hmm. is is making sure that just because you're wealthy doesn't mean you have a bigger say mm-hmm. in in how you know how society functions. Um, when it comes kind kind of underneath underneath that mm-hmm. layer or, or, or maybe trans, I don't know if transcending it is quite the right word, but um, the culture of, of individualism mm-hmm. that is present in the United States is so damaging to our political structures, to, to so much. And, and, you know, we're, we're recording this right now, right in the middle of the COVID-19 crisis yeah. and, that this this crisis is just laying bare all of the ways in which a culture of individualism and money grabbing and refusing to care for people as part of a community and as a collective is just laying bare all of these things that we have been doing for decades and centuries and that are are da- are, are damaging to not just individual bodies and people who are dying but also to the functioning of our very society. Yeah. We've completely shut down because we we are recognizing that oh we we don't live we don't live in silos we don't live as individuals we live as interconnected beings mm-hmm. whose lives intersect each other in in almost every single way imaginable um, and so so that's kind of you know the the, the money and politics side I think a, a piece that I said earlier is is connected to that in the sense that you know people have been trying to hoard resources for, for themselves because we've been taught that resource, there aren't enough resources to go around. So we yep. need to make sure that our individual selves are cared for. And that leads, that leads to disproportionate allocation of resources. Um, and, and so I think that this, this, we also have a need to really rethink the ways in which um, 
we focus on individualism so much and, and, and start to think about how do we live as, as a collective body and, Mm -hmm. and, and, um, make sure that we are caring for the whole community and not, not just our own individual needs at a time. Um, so yeah, that's kind of my yeah. response to your No, question. no, that, that just makes me reflect. I mean, so many, um, there's different strands of interconnected thoughts that are popping through my head. I'm thinking about as we're talking, you know, there are conversations happening in the public sphere about, you know, sacrificing lives in order to quote, restart the economy. And that feels like the, the peak of like capitalist demise that we are, you know, putting the needs of capitalism ahead of the health and well-being of human beings. And at the same time, of course, you know, people are losing their jobs and losing their livelihoods. And um, I think you're right that these things, or and correct me if I'm misinterpreting, these things need not be mutually exclusive. Like we can take care of one another and, and live productive, valuable, meaningful, fulfilling lives. And like right now it feels like there's a tension between the two of those. Is that sort of in line with what, what you're, what you're thinking? Right. Right. Yeah. And and for me, for example, like, you know, there's this argument that universal healthcare isn't good for, for the economy um, that some people tout as like, you know, we don't, we don't have the money to make sure that everyone has the insurance that they need. And this crisis wouldn't have this this COVID nineteen crisis wouldn't have proliferated so much so drastically if people were hadn't been afraid to seek medical attention when they needed it, um, you know before before mm-hmm. it just completely exploded as a as a medical crisis and so we're we're just seeing I, to me like we're seeing the ways in which you you're, what you said is absolutely right like the, there's not making sure that the economy functions well is not mutual is not contradictory to ensuring that people are cared for, you know, mm-hmm. and in fact, <laughs> this crisis is showing that like, if people are cared for, if a community is cared for an economy can function, w- will function. But now our economy is collapsing because we didn't, we have, we didn't think to care mm-hmm. for, for the entirety of, of the country. But because our lives are so interconnected and my faith leads me to mm-hmm. really trust and believe that, that we are all interconnected, but because we didn't, we haven't acknowledged that fact as a political system well enough. We're seeing, we're seeing the collapse of our, of our economic structures and, and our, and I would say even our political structures. Yeah. Um, like we're, we're, I, I keep thinking to myself, we're, we're moving into a whole new world order um, without like, you know, without much preparation. Cause this totally has taken us by surprise, this whole crisis. Um, and, and, and yet, um, I, my hope is that this crisis will lead us to reimagine and restructure mm-hmm. our systems in such a way that we actually care for the entirety of, of our communities in such a way that, um, that affirms the life of human beings. And, and, and I think that we will see that in so doing, are we will have an economy that that functions yeah like, i think i think it's important to remember that it econ- at least at least in my opinion <laughs> um economies economies are built to support people people are not built to support economies mm, wow so you just said something um you just used the word hope and that kind of brings me to the second part of this question um which is you know on the flip side of things is there is there anything that is sort of giving you hope about the future of 
of American democracy or even sort of democracy around around the world? What are what are some some bright points in in your life right now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, just, just to go along the vein of like things aren't mutually exclusive or contradictory. I think that there's actually a lot of hope for me coming out of the COVID nineteen crisis, and that we are seeing communities of care blossom, especially on local levels, mm-hmm. so much right now. Um, I think that this is also a time where people are seeing or being reminded very clearly that local politics matters. Like who is your mayor matters. Who is your governor matters in large part because um, there is very little guidance from the federal level when it comes to how communities should be addressing this COVID-19 crisis. Um, And, and now it's it's on it's on local elected officials and state level elected officials to usher people through this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, it, local politics has always mattered, but yes. it is so clear. It is so clear now that it matters um, because just because it's it's on the local level that people are getting their needs met. That um, you know, students who used to be in school are still getting their meals provided to them or not um, because their local officials set up structures to provide that or not. Um, so so I, I, even though that we are in this global crisis and a pandemic, and it's and it's obviously very traumatizing and 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 difficult in so many ways, I am also seeing a lot of instances in which communities are coming together in which people are relearning what it means to live interconnectedly um we have you know people inmates who are being released from from prison um when Uh they arguably really shouldn't have been in prison we have there there are so many ways in which um communities are communities are are in a weird way, like being reunited mm-hmm. um, during this time. So I, there's a, there's a lot of hope for me in in this time because I think that we are being invited to relearn what it means to live as community. I will echo that, like observing at least from a distance all of the virtual um, connections that have been made and um, the ways in which people are rallying around vulnerable communities is really heartening. Um, and it's like I want to hold on to that. And, and also know that there's so much more we can do and like so much more work to be done. Um, you had mentioned um, the, you know, this, we're sort of, our, it feels like our, our whole order is shifting and being upended and that includes our political order. Um, and, you know, we see elections um, that are being postponed because of this this crisis, um, and uh, the Democratic primary elections um, here in the United States in particular. Um, but I, I think this is sort of like a good opportunity to circle back around to the question that's sort of at the heart of this podcast about like the act of voting. Like this is this is the thing that we do to offer our consent to be governed, and it's. So interesting to think about in this time when, um, you know, most of us are just opting in to self-quarantining and staying home, but there's also some coercion. Like we are all consenting to this as a part of this democratic system. Um, But sort of where I'm going with this is that I I would love for you to um, reflect both on what this act now means to you, thinking about 
you know, voting in upcoming elections, voting in the general election, um, and maybe just sort of also reflect on, I, I know that you're a regular voter, your history of voting, and like, what does what does that like act of marking the pen to the paper mean to you on any level, on, on a, on a practical level, on a spiritual level, on a, on an existential level, um, you can sort of take it in any direction you like. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for circling back to this question. Um, my relationship to voting has definitely evolved over time. Um, when I, when I turned 18, I, I'm, I'm Virgo, I'm born in late September. Um, when Likewise. I turned 18, yeah, <laughs> um, I, if I remember correctly, I think, I think I might've left school early so that I could submit my, my voter registration, like application on my, on my 18th birthday. Oh, wow. Um, I, I might be misremembering that, but it, it was regardless, it was a big deal that yes. I was eligible to vote for me. It was a big deal, especially because I turned 18 in 2008 in September, 2008. So just a couple months later, I was able to vote for president Obama. Like that was the first election that I partook oh, wow. in. And I had been campaigning for him the months prior, even though I wasn't an eligible voter, um, so it, it meant a lot to me and, um, it meant a lot to me through college when I worked as a voter engagement organizer on my campus and I, my campus was actually, it, it made Connecticut news. We were subject to very blatant, um, voter disenfranchisement tactics by mm. local, um, elected officials because, you know, the, the, the classic situation of, you know, oh, you're students, you don't actually live here. You're not, mm-hmm. you're not worthy of voting in our elections and, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. Um, and that, that was the first time that I had really experienced voter disenfranchisement for myself. And so that really further entrenched me into the opinion, like voting matters. They wouldn't be trying to take this away from me if it didn't matter. Oh yeah. Um, uh, and, and then, when I graduated from college and I became a voter engagement organizer for people for the American way foundation in Washington, DC, um, uh, for their youth programs, I, I suddenly met a number of, of young folks, um, lots of folks of color, lots of folks who have loved ones who are in prison, um, people who are undocumented, who, for whom voting, either wasn't an option or um, there was a lot of trauma and skepticism surround the electoral system in general. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And, and that I I used to be just a very like everyone who can vote has to vote. And like, if you don't, you're um, you know, X, Y, Z negative, like Mm -hmm. negative connotations. Um, But to finally realize that, oh, my engagement with the voting system comes from a place of huge privilege and and I don't have as much um, communal historical trauma related to it as Mm. as many other people and communities do. That really that just I think it made me into a more mature advocate for uh, for, you know, uh, electoral engagement and voting and and also um, more aware of, oh, like. I should probably pay attention to the communities who have been disenfranchised, you know, like felons and, and um, uh, just p- people who, for whatever reason, have have not had easy access. Yeah. To voting. Yeah. The cost, the cost can be such a huge burden for, for certain folks. Um, yeah. And it sounds like you um, have been really mindful about recognizing the privilege that you had growing up in a community to, again, to circle all the way back around to the beginning um, of the podcast, 
the the privilege you had growing up in a civically engaged community um, where access to politics and understanding politics was easy. Um, you sort of you know made reference to your your position as a as a white woman. Um, there is a certain privilege that um, comes with being in that position. It sounds like you've really been mindful about this and have sort of used that privilege to think about how you can support folks for whom access to voting isn't easy. Maybe it's costly. Um, maybe um, one is ineligible um, because um, they have committed a felony. Um, so it sounds like you've done a really beautiful job of um, harnessing that privilege and using it for the greater collective good. Yeah. And, and also kind of similar to what you're doing through this podcast, just, just actually becoming more curious about why, why would people not vote? You know, I just, I just like, at least initially, I just assumed that everyone must have had the exposure that I had to the electoral process when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, and now it's very clear to me that, oh, a huge reason why I'm a consistent voter is because I was bred to be a consistent voter. Like <laughs> That's a good you know, way of putting I, it. Yeah. And, and there's all this research about, you know, if you, if you vote three times, like if you vote three times within five years of becoming an eligible voter, you'll, you'll become a lifelong voter. I fell, I fell into that category. I mean, I just, I had a family, I had a community that really encouraged me to do that. Um, but there are many people for whom that is just not something that they're encouraged to do. And, and again, some people are just really skeptical of the electoral process. So they yeah. don't even want to go, they don't even want to go near it. Um, so, so even though I'm someone for whom I still believe voting matters, um, and at the same time, I have become very frustrated and, and upset and, and sometimes a little disillusioned uh, with voting just because of all the money in politics. And yeah. you know, I'm, I'm someone who really wants to see a progressive candidate become president. And yet there are so many structures and systems in place that are preventing that from happening, um, even, you know, this not to say that, you know, the United States would necessarily overwhelmingly vote for a progressive candidate, but just just how, how the system can be manipulated so that those who are in power can just further reinforce yeah. their, their opinions and their positions. Um, you know, I, I have become more woke, I guess, in that regard yeah. and, and like a little bit... Um, more frustrated with the system than I used to be when I was a starry-eyed, like, yay, like, running rocks yep. Um, yep. kind of person. Uh, but I, I, I still vote, and I still think it's important. And I also recognize that that is also a, a virtue of my parents really nailing that nailing that belief in me. Yeah. Um, and, and it takes a lot of effort to um, help someone who didn't have that upbringing feel or think the same way. Um, and, and not, not that everyone needs to think the same way about voting. I don't, I don't think that they do. Um, but I, I'm just much more, I'm much more understanding now of people who aren't regular voters or choose not to vote at all or vote, but they're really disillusioned with the process. Like I, you know, I, I understand that a lot, a yeah. lot better now as to why that might be. Yeah, there are there are layers and layers to the reasons why an individual might not vote um, versus you know a whole community of folks that have you know well young young people you know look at voter turnout amongst um, younger folks and you know I I think it has as much to do with not yet being socialized into the system as um, political actors not caring and not paying attention to 
to young people. Um, that's that's a, a working hypothesis, um, putting that out there. Um, but I think that the the lack of um, recruitment and mobilization by politicians um, in candidates, party organizations of young folks, um, you know, it all becomes a self reinforcing thing. So absolutely. Yeah. And when I worked as a youth, you know, uh, young voter engagement organizer, um, that that was a huge thing that we focused on was like just helping politicians understand that like, just because someone like, for example, I, I, I campaigned for Obama when I was 17, you know, cause I, I cared. Um, but that was my own initiative. Like that, that was me, that was me yeah. doing that. Um, but there, there are a lot of young people, young people care, like, and especially, especially now, because, you know, who knows if we'll have social security. We're yes. not, I'm We're, not like, planning on it. <laughs> Right, Honestly. right. I mean, we we care, but it's it's uh, it's hard for us to to think that politicians care about us. Honestly, yeah, a lot of the time, um, and 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 I think politicians are often shooting themselves in the foot by not being by not engaging young young people because um, it's just you know at some point they do become eligible voters or or, or they become elderly voters and and here's a whole swath of the population that you didn't you didn't help. You you didn't yeah. help them feel affirmed in in their in the stages where they could have become regular voters. Um, so so all, all this all this to say, um, I I think that young people really 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 do care, and and a lot of times it's 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 a matter of creating campaigns and um, creating campaigns that, that speak to their issues and that also are just a lot more, a lot more accessible in terms of like being easy to understand. You know, I, I think to myself, if campaigns, if campaign ads and campaign, um, uh, especially on the local level, like if people took, took tips from like Nike or Target or, you know, all those (laughs) companies that like, you can recognize their logo without the name being present yeah. on, on a billboard. Like imagine if, imagine if a similar kind of marketing tactic was taken for electoral engagement, mm-hmm. like you would see a huge spike in, in engagement among, among young people, but among everyone, but, because, but instead we see, um, especially on the local level, very confusing, um, like, posts on like billboards on the side of the road about a a planning and zoning meeting that's happening at a time when many people are working. Like it's just, uh, there are just all these, all these ways in which I think people are actively disencouraged from being engaged in politics just by the way that the information is communicated to them. Um, So anyway, that's, this is like a long rant on my part. No, 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 this, this is, this is all, all great information. And I'm, I'm so glad that, um, you keep consistently referencing local politics because, you know, we do see, you know, some flashy marketing and advertising that's done by campaigns at higher levels. Um, you know, Rock the Vote has been around for a while. Um, the, what Mm -hmm. was that associated with MTV? I think back in the nineties. Um, uh, but Local politics really, and as we talked about earlier in the podcast, local politics really is where it is all happening right now. Um, you know, the the responses to the COVID crisis are being managed at the state and local levels. Um, and 
voter turnout we know is just lower in those elections and engagement is lower those elect is lower in those elections. So um, I think you're spot on with that with that analysis. Um, so normally, like that would be the last question, though you know, wrap up. What does voting mean to you? Um, but I I would like to. Um, well, first of all, ask you if there's anything else you'd like to add um, in response to that question or any other questions that um, I've asked. And then I do have one more um, question I'd like to ask you as someone who is a, a spiritual human being um, before we wrap up. I, I guess the one thing that, that I, I've been thinking about a bit lately is um, the ways in which voting to me is so much about the the relationship that I have to a community and like, for example, I am also a citizen of Spain, Mm. um, but I have not once voted in the Spanish election, even though I'm eligible and I could even mail a ballot from the United States. Um, I've never, never voted in Spain, even though, um, obviously there's a lot of stuff that needs, um, repairing in Spain. uh, Yeah. It's economy and, and all sorts of things. Um, and, and and it was recent that was recently pointed out to me by by a European friend. She was like, "Why don't you vote in Spain? Like your vote your your vote matters." And mm-hmm. for me, it was like I never even thought to do it because I've even though I'm a citizen, I've never lived there. Um, and so it, it just it, to me it was a reminder of how for me I. Where I, whenever I move somewhere, I register to vote there. That's like one of the first things that I do because yeah. like, this, this is my this is my community. Um, I, I I'm here, and I certainly want to benefit from the community, but I also want to offer something to the community. Um, and, and so I've just been I've just been holding some some reflections on like, huh, like what is the appropriateness of me voting in a country yeah. you know where I I've never I've never lived there I really don't know I don't know the political landscape there too well and and this is a question that you know again when I was uh, in college and people were critiquing me and others for voting in our college town because we didn't live there mm-hmm. according to them um you know it, it does beg the question or, or or you know invite introspection as to you know um where where is my engagement where is my engagement appropriate um and, and there's no clean or, or right answer to that it's such an individual yeah thing, yeah individual thing um but yeah I've been I've just been thinking about that uh, about how I am so committed to American politics and yet um I have access to another country's electoral system but I've never engaged with it yeah oh that's so interesting and I had, I I guess knowing I knowing that you're a, a citizen of Spain I, I hadn't thought about that either that's so interesting huh I'll have to reflect yeah. on sort of like the normative underpinnings of that all right so my last question um relates back to your spirituality and I'm I'm wondering if you could just talk to us a little bit about how your spirituality is informing your response political or otherwise to like this current moment that we are in this, this COVID-19 crisis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, my, my spiritual practices, my, my faith, I mean, just, just so the folks on who are listening to this know, I'm, I'm someone who identifies as Christian. I also identify as, as Buddhist. Um, and I, um, you know, I, I, I'm just someone who, who 
practices spirituality very concretely in terms of like physical practices, yeah. but I also have a sense of belief that maybe for others might seem abstract. So that's kind of my, my spiritual landscape in a nutshell. Um, my, my faith in God and also my understanding of, of teachings within Christian and Buddhist contexts invites me to trust that uh, there is life beyond what appears to be death. And mm. that's, that's not to, that's not to say that the deaths that we are witnessing, like the deaths of physical bodies that we're witnessing because of the COVID-19 crisis are, you know, all of it, like they're going to come back on resurrection day. And like, you know, it's, all gonna be <laughs> um, it's yeah. not to say that it's more to say that we can use difficult moments like this for, uh, uh, as as fuel for ushering new life into into people and into communities and into systems, including our political systems, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, an analogy that's often used in, in Buddhism and that I love is the idea of, of compost. Like you need compost to grow a garden, and compost is literally like a pile of crap and like dead <laughs> things. You know, if you look at it, it's like oh, that's like completely worthless or completely disgusting. Um, and it's, it's kind of dead. Um, but it's because of that material that we're able to actually help new life come forth and blossom. And so for me, um, the, that, that understanding, which grows out of my, my spiritual faith and my practices is really helping me, I think, weather this crisis, because I, I trust that this this is a time where there is a lot of death and dying. And I sense that there is also new life that is waiting to sprout beneath the surface, including, including the reorientation and the restructuring of our political systems in such a way that will value and affirm human bodies, Mm -hmm. um, no matter who they are. And that will also invite us to live in a more interconnected manner. So I I really think that we are on the precipice of, I think we are on the precipice of of a revolution. Yeah. And, and I mean I mean that in in all the senses. I mean a political revolution. I mean an economic revolution. I mean a spiritual revolution because we have almost no choice but to yeah. approach the world differently now. Um, so that's that's kind of you know uh, some musings on on how I'm I'm approaching this crisis from a place of spiritual groundedness. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And and I I love that you use the word and to connect these ideas of like we are dealing with grief and death and this possibility of revolution and um it can be really challenging I think to hold both of those at the same time. Um but that's I think when we are most human and um you know, there is meaning to be made out of all of this. And, and maybe we don't know fully what that meaning will be, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of really beautiful meaning making in addition to navigating all of the ups and downs. Um, I can think of no better place to end. Thank you so very much for your time. Um, I really, really enjoyed chatting with you and, um, yeah, Best of luck out there, in there, 
at home. <laughs> yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat. And um, yeah, I'm excited to see where this project keeps keeps going yeah. and um, to hear other people's um, democracy biographies. And uh, um, so, yeah, thank you. Thank you, too, for, for taking the time and, and for doing what you're doing. Of course. Of course. All right. Take care. That's all we have for today, folks. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week when we hear from Pia Deshpandi, a senior political science major at Columbia University in New York City, who tells us how she came to love participation in American politics through the influence of parents, teachers, and a fateful journey to become an official delegate to the Democratic National Convention in 2016. Many thanks to William Lee, who serves as our sound engineer and who composed the theme music for this podcast. <laughs>